Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation. I am the traffic anchor for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And with me today is no one. I am solo today. No Joseph, he's my usual co-host. No Nicole, who is my usually uh, affable villain, who is not here. Partly due to social distancing, since this room is pretty much six by four, and that would uh, break all protocol for social distancing, but also partly due to spring break. See, my original plan for spring break was to have off work on Thursday and Friday at the end of the week, today being a Tuesday. I usually record the show on Thursdays, but since I wasn't going to be here on this coming Thursday, I decided I'd record early. And then have a show, a live show, at least a new show for everybody on uh, for this week, because it is spring break. But the world is topsy-turvy right now. It's a little bit strange. I was going to take my family up to that small ski area we have in Colorado. It's called Monarch. It's not too far from the little town of Salida. It's in south-central Colorado. They, it's one of those areas that receives a tremendous amount of snow every year. I mean, they have tons and tons of snow. It's a small area uh, where you just drive up and park, and then you go skiing, and you have to stay, if you're going to stay like we were, uh, stay for a couple of days in Salida or Buena Vista or somewhere not too far from there. But they are closed, along with all the other ski resorts in the state. And they aren't just closed for the week. They decided that they were going to be done now for the season. So this week-long closure has turned into a season-long closure for not only Monarch, but also Vail Resorts and one of our other local areas, Loveland, the Loveland Ski Area, which is very popular with the locals here. And it's usually, with Arapahoe Basin, one of the first in the state to open every season and one of the last to close every season. And they are now... On the list of one that will stay closed for the entirety of the season and hopefully will reopen sometime in October. Uh, they also had great snow and we're expecting to stay open lengthy into, uh, into the spring. So you can just imagine what this is doing for those resorts, for those local economies in those little towns. For the state economy, I was actually going to go skiing this past Sunday, and I was renting some skis for my girls, and we go to this little uh, ski shop uh, here locally in the Denver area, and I picked up some skis on Saturday, thinking we were going to go skiing on Sunday. Well, I got the notice via Twitter uh, on Saturday night that all the ski areas were going to be closed for at least a week, starting on Sunday. And so I had to go back and return the skis. So that even the local businesses here in Denver are being affected by this situation. It's just devastating. It was, I mean, I mean, all the restaurants are closed except for takeout and delivery and drive-through. It's just a strange time. I was reading earlier today that Streets Blog, usually I I hammer Streets Blog, and actually I have a, uh, a good 
dissection of one of their articles coming up in a episode. Uh, I don't know when I'm going to do it now. Uh, I was going to do it, I think, for this week or, or next week, but we'll, we'll see when I, I get to it. But uh, they actually made a suggestion that I agree with, surprisingly. They say you can actually help out during this virus if you have to be out driving, when most people shouldn't be out and about. But if you're going to be out driving, actually drive slower because that means you're going to be safer. That means you're going to be less likely to get into a crash. And if you get into a crash, it requires usually a visit by a first responder or even worse, a trip to the hospital. And that obviously puts more pressure on an already freaked out healthcare system. And the hospitals don't need to tend to your cuts and bruises and broken bones while they're already trying to deal with all the people that are going to be sick here. Hopefully not too many, but I have a, uh, a a relative who works for one of the local hospitals, and they are concerned, very concerned, that they're going to be at one point overwhelmed with people who are sick coming into the hospital, and they're not sure exactly how they're going to handle it until they have to just handle it. So it's just a strange time. I mean, I feel I feel very disrupt, and I'm sure you and other people I, I talk to are, are feeling the same way. But I feel very disrupted right now. In my life, I like order, I like routine, I, I like things in their place. I, I typically don't do well, especially long term, when I'm forced out of my comfort zone. And right now, I am way out of my comfort zone. There is so much news coming at us so fast. All of it's bad. I have a Twitter feed. I have my tweet deck that's set up in uh, in on one of my computers as I'm doing my traffic thing. And I have separate, separate columns for, for different lists that I follow. And the news just comes in so fast, it's hard to keep up, and it's and and really most of it's not good. It's very disturbing from the markets being way down to the closure of all sorts of businesses and restaurants and the demolition, really, of the airline industry right now and the cruise industry. There, there's very little traffic on the road. Today was another good example of very little traffic. Yeah, Monday and Tuesday have been extremely light days on on uh, the highways, except for when we had a crash and then traffic would back up. Shows you how many people just still take their usual route. When they could take an easy alternate to get around that traffic, they don't. They still stick with their usual route. But all of this is throwing me off. There's actually, as I'm recording this, in a room that is nearly next door to me, one of the editors keeps on coughing. And that's throwing me off. It's anybody who is sick, even showing signs of sickness. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm really concerned that, that these people, even if it's just a common cold or the sniffles or allergies, are going to be treated as if they have a scarlet letter on them. As if they are the coronavirus and you have to stay away and you're going to be quarantined. And it's it's starting to, to happen where I've seen people shun other people because they believe that other person might be sick. And and right now, it's, again, throwing me off knowing that this, this person 
who is maybe 10 feet away in a different room, is coughing a lot. Because one of those symptoms that we keep hearing about is the dry cough. So it's disturbing. It's distressing, even though it might just be an allergy attack. He might have just taken a sip of water and, down, and went down the wrong tube, and he's just trying to figure that out. But he's coughing. So it's throwing us off. There's still some traffic out and about at the grocery stores, at the big box stores, at Walmart and Sam's and Costco, where people are still fighting over toilet paper and any kind of cleaning supply. I went to three different stores yesterday trying to find a couple of different just regular things. Even all the pancake mix was gone, by the way. All the Hungry Jack. The Kodiak was still there, but there was no more Hungry Jack, and my little girl loves the Hungry Jack. So we can't do without the Hungry Jack. But it is just eerily strange to see all the chicken and steaks and ground beef that's just all gone. There, there are there is food to be had, and so I'm not I'm not in, in gonna starve. I'm not thinking I'm gonna starve. There's plenty of uh, ready to eat meals out there. There's all the camping stores and uh, uh, survival stores that still have plenty of food. So I'm not gonna starve. We have plenty of vegetables and fruits to, uh, available to still eat. Still, of course, can't find any toilet paper or paper towels anywhere. But I should be good for at least another couple weeks while I'm still hunting for for them as a re- as a replenishment. I mean, I'm I'm right now just outside of our newsroom and usually they have a editorial meeting every morning where all the reporters and producers come together and they talk about the stories of the day that they want to cover. Well, today is different. Where everybody, all the reporters are and, and photographers and they they are out. They're not in the building. They're actually all on a conference call. There are fewer people now in this building than there ever has been. I think the sales floor is pretty much work at home right now. Uh, And it is pretty much if you have to be in the building, then you have to be in the building and then you can come. But otherwise, if if you can and have the ability to work at home or work away from the building, then you're asked to do so. But there might become a time where even us on our staff might, not be allowed to come back into the building. And we're making plans to work outside of the building. I'm, I'm already set up for a little mini studio in my home, in my basement, in case I need to work from home. We're looking at uh, setting up another little studio inside somebody's home that actually we can do a live broadcast from where we drive a one of our remote live broadcast trucks. And so we can have a signal coming from the home into the truck and then back here to the TV station uh, so we can actually do some kind of an live on-air broadcast with w- where you could see us rather than just hear us and have a picture of our face while we're on the phone trying to do our job. So that's obviously different, throwing us off. I mean, I really think our day-to-day lives are going to be, in some ways, forever disrupted. I mean, I think the number of sick people from this virus will be coming down. I'm hoping that we're not going to see that spike and we're all going to see the the hill, as they keep talking about, flatten the curve. So people will still get sick. People will still be impacted. We will still have people die from this. But over time, it will get better. 
and then it will get worse again as we get back into the regular flu and cold season in the fall and in the winter coming up at the end of the year. And then it's going to come back, hopefully not with a vengeance, but it will come back. And I think our day-to-day lives will be forever disrupted. I mean, you're, the, the markets will come back, and oil prices will come up, and gas prices will come up. Until then, it's nice to see gas at around $2 a gallon. One day I'll be able to buy toilet paper again, and my 409 spray at the at Walmart or Target or the grocery store, that'll happen again one day. But just not today, which again is throwing me off. And I think that's the theme for me. It's just um, I'm thrown off. And, and I think a lot of people are feeling the same way. I mean, just today on air, I featured one of my driving you crazy stories. Usually Tuesdays, I do a story called, that's where this whole thing comes from, driving you crazy, where somebody asks me a question, sends it in, and then I research it, and I, I study this, the question, and I... um contact people that, that can help me answer it, and then I answer it and I do it on, on air. And today was about a channelized right turn or continuous right lane, where if you're coming off, a uh, let's say, a, a highway ramp, many times there is this channelized or dedicated right turn that you make that gives you your own separate lane from the main lanes already going a certain direction. And then as you continue in your speed, you, you merge over to the main through lane and you keep on going. That way you don't have to stop. It's designed so you come off a highway or come off one road and you're turning right onto another road and you can stay up to speed and then you merge with traffic, uh, assuming somebody will let you merge. It's designed to keep traffic flowing. That's the way traffic engineers want to keep traffic going. They want it to keep flowing and this is one way to do it. It's actually one of my biggest, it's got to be probably my number one traffic pet peeve, is people not knowing how to use a dedicated right turn lane, channelized right turn, this continuous right turn lane. I hate it when people stop or treat it as a yield sign when you see that sign that says two separate lanes. Anyway, so I was answering this story. Uh, I did the story uh, for this viewer, and I was answering it on air, and... It just didn't feel right. I just didn't feel right doing the story. I don't know why. I just didn't. I guess maybe I'm just craving too much information about all this, this whole situation, how it's changing from minute to minute. But I know I can't do that. It's not healthy for me. It's not healthy for my wife, who also works in the news business. So she's craving this information, too. But I know it's not healthy for her. It's not healthy for me. It's not healthy for our kids who are hearing us talk about this all the time. It's hard for them to understand. It's hard for me to understand. So, that's pretty much where we are. And so I, uh, I'm i still here, still doing my thing, and I'm hoping to keep doing my thing for years to come. And I know everything will come back. It's just when. It's just when will we get to normal again? Or is this our new normal? Is this like after 9-11 where we had to deal with and to assimilate into a new normal where you have new security regulations at airports and you have more police and you have just a different overall feeling than you did before 9-11? So maybe this is it. Anyway, that being said, I wanted to revisit an interview that I did a while back 
that has nothing to do with the virus or with air travel. I was thinking about revisiting one of my uh, interviews uh, that was dealing with air travel about how sick airplanes are and how uh, dirty the water is inside the airplanes. And maybe I'll do that for uh, weeks coming up or maybe next week. Anyway, this week I wanted to revisit an interview with Dr. Lance Elliott, who wrote an article in Forbes titled, Will Self-Driving Vehicles Erode America's Love Affair with Cars? I thought it was a really great question. It's a topic that uh, we've touched here before on the program with some other guests, but we've not really spent a long time talking about that with any one specific person, so I think Dr. Elliott was the perfect guest for that. He's an expert in self-driving cars. His online, online columns, including this latest one for Forbes, amassed over a million views. So I think it was a great interview, and it's a good chance to... Talk something else. Take our mind off of what's going on in the world and and maybe at least get some relief from the virus and get back to talking traffic and self-driving vehicles and, and other things of uh, interest to us as, as we continue to uh, forge a new world, I suppose, and decide what is our new normal. Here's that interview with Dr. Lance Elliott. You know, Americans, they don't just love bridges. We love and hate our cars all at the same time. We love the freedom that the vehicle gives us. We love the style and the shape and the feeling of the wind blowing through our hair when we're in a convertible. There are hundreds of movies about cars. I mean, they're not just transportation. They can be a reflection of our status, of our style. But what the average American driving the average car doesn't love about the car is the cost of them and taking care of them. As we get closer and closer to the inevitability of a self-driving car world, will self-driving vehicles erode America's love affair with a car? That's the question put forth from Dr. Lance Elliott in an article he wrote for Forbes. Dr. Elliott is a world-renowned expert in artificial intelligence and especially autonomous vehicles. He is a former professor at USC and UCLA. He's been an advisor to Congress. He's an author of over 30 books, 300 articles, 200 podcasts, I think we can make that now 201. Dr. Elliot, thanks for being here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. It's great to be on your show. Well, we want to start out with your article in Forbes that you said it's no secret that, by and large, Americans love their cars, adding that it's not an easy relationship necessarily. We, we do love our cars. I named my first car. As I said in your introduction, cars really can be, and they are a reflection of who we are. Well, you're absolutely right, and and uh, like you, I also have given uh, names to my cars over the history of my car ownership, uh, and you also pointed out rightfully, too, that we're kind of conflicted in a sense. Uh, we love our cars at some times and other occasions when it breaks down just at the worst point of time or you have to deal with a tire that's uh, blown out. Uh, at that time, you're probably cursing the car. Uh, the other aspect, too, that is kind of of interest culturally is advertising by the automakers has always tried to kind of make us think about our cars in ways uh, that fits to how we view the world. For example, they tend to uh, portray that if you're manly if you can somehow handle a car and be able to drive it in a rugged road. And for women, they try to portray, well, a woman's supposed to be family-oriented, and so therefore it's a gathering place uh, to have a family. So there's been a cultural uh, uh, 
intertwining of our cars and our personality and our sense and view of ourselves that has taken place over the entire history of the automobile. Well, and I think the, as you mentioned about how we were being advertised to uh, cars and, and how cars make us feel, I, I would think that that advertising would then definitely change if we were all driving self-driving cars. Do you think it'll be more like this car is going to make you enjoy feeling the road uh, and selling the experience maybe instead of behind the wheel, but in this self-driving car that is comfortable and time-saving and an experience like that? Certainly, we're going to see quite a dramatic shift in how we are marketed to about self-driving cars. And one of the things that might be helpful to clarify, too, because when people hear the phrase self-driving cars, it's kind of confusing as to what that refers to. So there's two kinds, in a sense, of self-driving cars. There's what I call the true self-driving car. That's an autonomous car where there's an AI system that drives the car, and there is no driving action by a human driver. Those are true what are called level four or level five cars on a scale that's accepted in the industry. Then there are, self, quote, self-driving cars that aren't really, in a sense, in my view, true self-driving cars. They're cars that are semi-autonomous in the sense that they still require a human driver to be present and ready to drive the car. In that sense, you're kind of co-sharing the driving task with the automation. So I tend to focus on the true self-driving cars, the ones where there's no human driver involved. Therefore, the occupants inside the vehicle are all passengers. There are no drivers in that vehicle. And we'll talk more about these self-driving cars and how they might look and how they might work coming up in just a little bit and how they're really going to change our entire lives. But do you think our attitudes will be changing once we see these self-driving cars uh, do you think right now people they're not really excited about it they they're they're fearful of the self-driving car how will that attitude change from now until we maybe get those on the road well you're right about the fear aspect uh, recent surveys tend to suggest that something like 60 to 70 percent of uh the u.s adult population that's been surveyed asking them about their perception of self-driving cars, they tend to say that they're fearful of it. And whereas some of those in the industry, self-driving car industry, then kind of look askance at those, uh, the general public and all like they're not in the know, I actually agree with them. In fact, I would even kind of question that other 20% or 30%. uh, What do they know that somehow the rest of us don't know? And the reason I say that is Right now, true self-driving cars, so that's back to the point that I'd made before, ones where the AI itself drives the car and there's no human driver interaction with the driving task, those are still by far not close to being ready for the road. And that's part of the reason why when you hear about these trials that are taking place across the U.S. in terms of making use of self-driving cars on our public roadways, by and large, most of the states require that a human backup or safety driver be in the car and ready to drive the car, even though in theory, these are supposed to be self-driving cars where there's no need to have a driver. But because that technology is not there yet, it adds some amount of safety to have that backup or safety driver in the car to be able to take over. And what can happen is, is the what they call a disengagement. That's when the safety or uh, backup driver 
has to intervene because they believe that the AI system is not going to make the right choice. And you can even look at the uh, audit trails some of the states require, like California, that those be published to indicate how many disengagements there were by the car, by the operator of the car, and the numbers are still quite high. So the point being that, in a sense, people are right to be somewhat fearful of this because this is a nascent technology that is not yet really ready for public roadways and some are concerned that right now we all are kind of involuntarily guinea pigs in a grand experiment trying to see if we can actually make true self-driving cars we're speaking with dr lance elliott autonomous driving expert artificial intelligence expert author contributor to Forbes, all about self-driving cars and autonomous technology. You said that you have the true self-driving cars and then you have the other category. That's the category where like the Teslas right now with the autopilot, things like that would sort of fall into that bucket, correct? That's absolutely correct. And uh, when we refer to semi-autonomous cars, which the Tesla would be in that category, meaning it has some autonomy, but it's not fully autonomous. Uh, there's a wide range of what they call ADAS, Advanced Driver Assistance Systems, that might be on the car. And one of the difficulties that we have right now in the automobile space is that there's no clear-cut standard definition for what those consist of. For example, cruise control. Well, there's a wide variety of ways in which an automaker can implement cruise control, and they can call it all different kinds of names as well. And so it's hard to compare one brand of car versus another brand of car. But you're absolutely right. The Tesla, which is obviously a very popular car in terms of its autopilot, uh, it is considered a level two. So that's, again, on the scale that I was talking about before, level four and level five being true autonomous cars, level two and level three being the semi-autonomous cars, with level three being on that cusp, being very sophisticated in terms of semi-autonomous capabilities, but not yet quite true self-driving cars. When a driver has to be present, how much do they really get a break? I mean, you would think that there has to be quite a bit of engagement because you have to be ready at a moment's notice. So you need to be paying attention because it's likely that that moment is going to come out of nowhere, right? So, Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because one of the most sadden, saddening and disturbing aspects that I often see, which you'll see posted on YouTube videos and other places, is these human drivers that falsely believe that the semi-autonomous system is truly driving the car for them. And therefore, what they tend to do is they mentally go adrift of the driving task. They physically go apart from the driving task. They remove their hands from the wheel. They take their feet off the pedals. And this is a very, very dangerous situation to be in because the assumption is that the human driver is ultimately responsible for the driving of the car at the level two and level three cars. So these people that are falling asleep or that are looking at their cell phones, they have unfortunately either misled themselves or been misled by others to believe that that automation can do more than it can do. And that's the very scary thing as we now start to move into the level three, the ones where it's even more sophisticated uh, automated features because uh, there's a famous graph that shows that as the automated features tend to increase, and yet you still need a human driver involved, human drivers tend to become more lackadaisical in their driving aspects, which means it's leaving open a gap where the human driver is not attentive, and yet at any moment, the automation might suddenly just say to the driver, take over and start driving this car. 
That's because there's so many interesting videos on TikTok that people are watching. It's the truth. Is it? <laughs> oh, oh, is that the truth? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad to be corrected. In that. <laughs> so this is obviously the first step to full autonomy when we have these semi-autonomous cars. Really, as you as you mentioned, it, it started with cruise control and, and automatic windows and, and little features in the car that, that do things for us. Instead of cranking the window, we now have a button that you just touch, touch it once and up comes the window. How long do you think this process, though, will take to introduce self-driving cars that will really be self-driving for us? Will it take a, a, a more of these semi-autonomous cars on the road and then slowly but surely take over with fully autonomous cars? And how will that mix all work out while we're driving with some human drivers and some computer drivers? Well, you've asked a great question. And it's one that comes up at many of the conferences that I speak at. And it's it's kind of an intriguing notion, too, in the sense that you said the word stepwise or stepping towards the full autonomy. Well, it's interesting that some of the automakers are tech firms. Some indeed are doing it in the fashion that you kind of alluded to, which is inch by inch, adding more automated features so that you progress from a level two, which, as you mentioned before, or as I met, sorry, as I mentioned before, is like a Tesla. Uh, and then to the level three, which we really haven't quite seen yet, even though some people are claiming that they have level three cars. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, into level four, where it's truly autonomous, and then ultimately level five. Well, Waymo, the Google company that's doing self-driving cars, long ago, they decided, well, at least in terms of the history of self-driving cars, they decided that rather than trying to do a stepwise refinement like that, they didn't want to get mired into the whole level three part of things where you have very sophisticated technology but still expect the driver, the human driver, to co-share the driving task. So they decided to leap over that, and they have focused entirely and only on true self-driving cars. In the meantime, most of everyone else, because they're automakers, have decided, well, we're going to have to just continue to incrementally move towards that direction. So it's kind of a race of sorts to see which way is the better way. Is it better to go incrementally step by step and adding more features? Or is it better to leap over that and try, try to go entirely for a true self-driving car? Now, back to the question that you asked about when will we potentially have this. Let's also clarify, and I don't want to get too wonky about it, but the level four versus the level five, I said both of those are true self-driving cars, but in reality, the truest of them all is the level five. That's where an AI system drives your car in whatever way a human could drive a car. The level four is kind of a compromise from that. It, what it allows the automakers to do is define what are called ODDs, operational design domains, which means circumstances under which the AI autonomy will actually work. I could, for example, say I have a self-driving car to level four, but it works only in sunny weather and only works in a particular neighborhood in Los Angeles. And it, within those confines, works as a truly autonomous car. But of course, the average person probably doesn't think of that as a truly autonomous car because, for example, if it starts to rain, what happens is the car says, oh, rain is outside of the domain of what I can do. So therefore, the car will automatically pull over to the side of the road or to some safe spot and come to a halt and wait for the circumstance to change into the situation in which it's able to drive. So when I explain that to people about the level four, they kind of scratch their head and they say, 
hmm, so that's considered a true self-driving car? And I tell them, no, I kind of question it too. But by and large, the roadway trials that you hear about, the experiments taking place in Phoenix and Pittsburgh and San Francisco and so on, they're all involving self-driving cars at that level four, where the automaker of the tech firm has defined a specific scope in which the car can work in an autonomous basis. And their hope is that that'll be satisfying, at least for the moment, to be able to say, okay, yeah, it's pretty constrained, but at least within those constraints, it can operate on its own. What popped into my head when you were describing about the car stopping and then pulling over if it started to rain, well, what if I'm just driving down the street? I know it happens during the summer here that there is this one area. I go by this gas station and they have the sprinklers that are sprinkling the road. So the car then hits the sprinklers, hit the car. The car thinks it's raining and then pow, I'm over to the side of the road when really I should be driving autonomously. You're right. There are many possibilities in that constrained scope of the AI system misinterpreting and believing that it somehow has gone outside of scope and then deciding to pull over, as I described. Furthermore, another aspect that I thought maybe you were going to go towards, and I'm sure that probably would have been your next question, which is, what about this idea of pulling over? You know, I'm sure you're familiar with areas. I know Here in Los Angeles, where I'm based, there are areas where I would never want my car to pull over to the side of the road unless it was an absolute emergency situation and I could not otherwise have the car proceed. And in that case, having an AI system that's going to sense arbitrarily decide because it's now outside its scope of its ODD that it's going to come to a halt in some arbitrary place to me, that's kind of a frightening thing, and I've written about this and said, look, we've got to think very carefully about that. It's, it's a nice thing to think about in theory, but it's another thing to put it into practice in the real world. And it seems like it would be the same thing in rural areas, because to me, fully autonomous cars would work in a densely packed urban area like Los Angeles, like Denver, like New York City. But out in the rural areas where maybe you don't have the 5G technology because you're going to need that to have the cars talking in real time to sensors and to satellites and all of that. You're going to need that 5G technology. You're not going to have it right now or maybe even the next 50 years in the rural areas. So you're probably going to have to maybe not for 100 years be able to have full autonomous technology. Well, so I just want to clarify one aspect about that I think that you've alluded to. So. The design for most self-driving cars is to design the self-driving car so it works on an independent basis. In addition, if it has the capability to network or connect with something else, it would do so. But that's kind of like icing on the cake in a sense. The, everyone is pushing towards that the autonomous car or self-driving car can drive entirely on its own even if somehow it's separated from a network completely. That's kind of the goal of what we're trying to achieve. Now, on top of that, as I mentioned, if you have an ability to do some kind of connection, and you mentioned 5G, which is one way to do it, and there's other ways to do it as well, um, then what you can do is you can do things what are called V to X. So I'll give you an example of that. V to V, X meaning any kind of letter of the alphabet almost. So V to V is, means vehicle-to-vehicle communications. So this allows one self-driving car to communicate with another self-driving car. And where that might be advantageous, let's take the rural area. Supposing that one car is driving along and it realizes that an animal maybe a cow, has wandered out onto the street. 
uh, it could, via V2V electronic communication, let other cars coming up behind it know, hey, there's a cow in the middle of the street. And then those cars would either decide to go some other way or they would slow down or in some manner, they would hopefully make use of that information. Now, in some cases, the V2V might be very hard to do, and it also depends on the technology that's being used. There's a kind of technology, almost like a Wi-Fi kind of technology, that even if you don't have a widespread network, it could still communicate to another car that's a short distance away. But in any case, you don't really need that per se in the sense that, yes, it adds value to have that, but it's considered not a necessity a self-driving, true self-driving car should be able to figure out, hey, there's a cow on the road and not have to have some other car be able to tell that. It'd be handy to have other cars communicate like that, but it doesn't have to happen. We're speaking with Dr. Lance Elliott. He is an autonomous driving expert, author, contributor to Forbes, artificial intelligence expert. Going back to your article about losing our love affair with the car, even though we might not get the same feeling of freedom as we get when we're behind the wheel of a car driving down the Pacific Coast Highway. I think we will, with autonomous technology, maybe get some freedom in the form of time back in our lives. That uh, it could be a selling point that we always hear about for mass transit. You can do work, you can read a book, you can watch a show while you're letting somebody else drive. You're absolutely correct on that. Indeed, one of the pieces that I'd written... Uh, was uh, described that there's an estimated in the U.S. alone 70 billion hours per year that human drivers drive a car. Now, let's assume that by and large, most of that driving time that those drivers do will translate into becoming passengers in a true self-driving car. So that's 70 billion hours a year given back to us that otherwise as a driver of a car even for those that are kind of cheating and looking at their cell phones when they're not supposed to be doing and that kind of thing. Nonetheless, if you're completely free from the driving task, now you can really do a lot of other things in your car. And as you mentioned, you might be able to work, uh, you might take a nap, who knows what you might do while you're in your car. In addition, some believe that because of self-driving cars, these true autonomous cars, that what we'll see is ride-sharing on a scale that we can't even conceive of far beyond the ride-sharing that we have today. And this will provide what many people call mobility as a service, or some are even saying mobility in our economy or an economic mobility economy in which ride-sharing will be huge. And those people that previously have been what are called mobility marginalized, that have a difficult time trying to make use of cars as a form of transportation will now suddenly be able to do so. In that sense, this love for self-driving cars or affection towards self-driving cars might happen because of that alone, because of the increased ability to have access to cars that otherwise today one might not have access to. So I kind of want to tie this back into politics, right? Because I've seen several Democratic candidates point to this incoming demon, let's say, of self-driving autonomous trucking putting a lot of people out of business and that we may need to give everybody money because we're going to put them all out of business because the robots are going to take their jobs. While I think this is a noble goal, I do want to get your opinion. How soon is that really going to be necessary? I mean, it sounds like just from the conversation we've been having for the last 20 minutes, we're several decades away from seeing any truck drivers lose their jobs to an autonomous vehicle. Uh, generally, I would agree with that. I, I guess 
I would say like five to 10 years away before we actually see this being implemented in any widespread basis. To your comment about decades away, uh, one of the things I try to point out to people is that this is not going to happen overnight. The automation and the ability to automate trucks and cars is not something that's done usually with a kit. Like you can't just take your conventional car and you take a kit and turn it into a self-driving car. As a result, if you look at the car side of things, there's 250 million conventional cars in the U.S. today. Those cars are not overnight going to suddenly be scrapped because we have self-driving cars. Plus, there's a certain pace at which you can even make self-driving cars once they actually exist. So I agree with your notion of decades before we would really see this in a prevalent way, uh, especially in the United States and in many other countries, even perhaps later than that. Now, back to the point about the jobs aspect, that's another piece that I had written in which I had mentioned to your point that we will see displacement, certainly as it occurs over time, that drivers like Uber drivers, taxi drivers, they would no longer presumably be needed in a world of self-driving cars. But again, it's not going to happen overnight. So we'll have a mixture of true self-driving cars and human-driven cars. And that's an important thing to keep in mind because a lot of people just think we're going to make this leap into a utopian world where suddenly you wake up one morning and there it is, all self-driving cars. So this time period over which self-driving cars gradually become, in a sense, perfected and made available and then ramped up and in the meantime, ramping down on conventional cars and conventional trucks over that period of time is when I've urged that we have to really start helping those who rely upon driving as their form of work and their income to in some way reskill them or do something to shift them in some other direction. And so it's not an urgency. On the other hand, it's not something I think that we should wait to consider. But isn't that inherently dangerous to have humans working at the same time with computers? Computers, you, you, we always hear, are almost infallible, where the panacea would be you're not going to need traffic lights because the cars are talking to each other in real time and they are just blowing through the traffic lights in all different directions and don't have to stop because there are no humans involved there. But when you have humans involved, they still need a traffic light. They still need the assurance that that car is not going to T-bone me, uh, and I can't just go blow right through that intersection. Well, we'll start with traffic lights. I'm, I'm known for saying traffic lights are not going to go away tomorrow uh, to the points that you made because they're useful for human drivers, and we're going to have human drivers mixing with self-driving cars uh, in terms of human drivers driving their cars and self-driving cars being driven by the AI system. Also, another point that you kind of uh, brought up there, there are some AI developers that live in a dream world in the sense that they say to me at conferences that I speak in and when I in, interact with them, they say, darn it, if we could just get rid of all those human drivers, a self-driving car would be a lot easier to make. And that's true. If you didn't have to worry about the foibles of human drivers in cars around you, then indeed it would be much easier for self-driving cars to be made and to be able to do uh, the function that we hope that they will do. But again, I don't see any realistic way to do that. Now, some counter with, well, supposing we do this, Lance, supposing we decide 
will have self-driving cars in certain confined areas and say that no human-driven cars are allowed in those confined areas. For example, we might take downtown Los Angeles and say, okay, downtown Los Angeles, from this day forward, once self-driving cars are actually working, only self-driving cars can exist in, in the downtown LA area and no human-driven cars. That, though, also raises other questions. Because if you're an Uber driver and you're a human driver and suddenly you're being told, oh, look, you can't earn income and drive into the downtown area anymore because we've decided instead these self-driving cars are going to do it. And furthermore, if you buy into the idea that supposedly self-driving cars are going to be owned by large companies and fleets, then you're essentially saying the small guy, they get nothing. And the big corporate greedy ones, they get the money because they have the self-driving cars. So I think this idea of being able to even restrict areas where you'll have self-driving cars and no human-driven cars, I'm dubious of that. And I'm back to what I keep saying to all the automakers and tech firms is you've got to assume that your self-driving car is going to be mixing in traffic with human-driven cars, which means you have to deal with what the, the things that human drivers do. And then the last point I'll make is you're absolutely right that there are in terms of the deaths and injuries by human drivers. So in the U.S., there's about 40,000 deaths per year due to car crashes. And I'll just pause for a moment. That's a staggering number. In addition, there's about 6 million accidents, car accidents, of which 2.5 million injuries to people exist. So the idea is that hopefully with true self-driving cars, we're either going to reduce that or drop that dramatically. But as long as we continue to have human-driven cars and then mixing with the self-driving cars, we're still going to have some amount of those car crashes because of that mixture. Well, just think of it this way. When I was watching Star Trek as a kid, they were supposed to be in, I think, the year 2300-something. And there was somebody still driving the ship. They didn't even have, at that time, full autonomy <laughs> of a starship 300 years from now. Uh, it's a great complaint and, and a good point. Where is the AI in that? I exactly. Agree so will we, as you as you mentioned, the, the automakers, and they are not going to want to go out of business. They're going to want to keep making and selling cars. So where are we with the automakers making these things? We keep hearing about the vehicles going to be shared, that we're only going to see Uber, Lyft-type vehicles, that we're not going to need to own one because I can just call one up on the app and, boom, there's one outside of my car, takes me to the grocery store, and then that same car takes somebody else home, and then another car somewhere takes me back home and, and takes me to the, my work or wherever I'm going. So I'm, nobody's going to own a car anymore. Everybody's going to be sharing these cars. So how do the automakers rectify that? Well, so uh, you have uh, uh, gleefully asked a question that's one of my favorite ones. So thank you for, for landing on that. And though the general wisdom amongst most pundits in the self-driving car space is that self true self-driving cars will be owned by large companies, either the automakers will do it themselves or we'll have an Uber-type company that will own them or some other large company that doesn't even have anything to do with cars will think, hey, that's a way to make money so let's buy up a bunch of these self-driving cars and put them out for ride-sharing purposes. Now, I am a bit of a contrarian, so here you'll and perhaps enjoy this. My view of it is, I think that's a false belief in the following way. I contend that we will still have individual ownership of cars, and here's my logic. So let's see if you can follow this and whether it makes sense to you as well. The logic is, 
right now, when we purchase a conventional car, roughly 95%, sometimes even higher than that, 95% of the time that car sits parked someplace, which is not very useful when you think about it. That's a costly resource for which we only use it maybe 5% of the time. Some people have been much less than that, maybe 1% of the time. But that time, I love it when I have it for that time. Yes, sir. You absolutely do. So when people talk about self-driving cars, they tend to assume that the cost of the self-driving car is going to be very high, much higher than conventional cars. Therefore, they say it will be out of the reach of the average consumer who today owns a car. Remember, I mentioned 250 million conventional cars in the United States alone today, 225 million licensed drivers. The reason why I contend that we will continue to have individual ownership is because those pundits are forgetting about a very important part about what a self-driving car can do. It can drive on its own, which means when I go to work in the morning, if I had my trusty self-driving car, that I love and I've given a name to it. When I get to work, what I can do is I can put it onto some network, whether it's a Facebook network or Uber network, whichever network, and say, my car is now available for ride-sharing purposes. So while I'm sitting there at work, voila, my car is making money for me. I eventually have it come and pick me up and take me home. Once I get home, I decide, oh, you know what, I'm gonna stay in the rest of the night, have dinner and go to sleep. So once again, I put my car out available for ride-sharing purposes. This means I'm making money off the car. If you're making money off your car, then the cost to buy the car now becomes a cost-benefit ROI, return on investment kind of question. Versus normally for most consumers today, when you buy a conventional car, you're not making that kind of a choice per se. You're just buying the car, paying the cost, and just kind of thinking, oh, I need a car in order to do things I need to do in life. Versus this car is going to make money for me. So what I contend is there'll be a huge cottage industry of people deciding it makes sense to buy a car, even if it's very expensive, and they'll be able to get a loan for it because the loan is not just at, towards the car itself as an asset, but also the income that that car can make. And thus, we will have, why should I as an individual allow the big automakers and everyone else to make money off of these cars if I could make money off of those cars? So I believe, that we don't. nobody knows yet how it's going to turn out, but I'm a bit of a contrarian saying, I believe there will be individual car ownership of these self-driving cars, and it will not be exclusive to large companies that own fleets. But more miles on my car when I'm not driving it means more maintenance and more fuel costs. Yes, I'm making that money, but also those cars have to be maintained. And right now, at least with the way we have uh, shops that will fix your car, they are at capacity with me driving my car 1,000 miles a month. But if my car is then driving 5,000 miles a month, I have to take it in more often. That means there'll have to be more shops that will do more auto repair to handle the cars that are going to be coming in more often. Because right now, my car is sitting in my garage, and so is my neighbor's, and so is my neighbor's, and so is my neighbor's. The, 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 the time frame of everybody getting their car serviced is spread out. But if you're using them more often, that time frame gets squished and you're going to have to have more maintenance more often. And then you have to deal with the insurance costs. Is insurance going to be even 
necessary except for hail damage if the car if the car is being driven by a computer and not a human well you've got a lot in there let me tackle the first part <laughs> which is about the repair and maintenance my brain so, goes a lot of different ways there no, I, I, could, I could i could see that <laughs> um and in fact one thing you might find of some idle interest is when i fly on airplanes because i travel quite a bit or uh, other places that i might be when someone discovers that i'm an expert on self-driving cars it becomes just this unbelievable lengthy conversation because people are quite curious about them, of course, and curious about what the future will consist of. And so once they start to tap into it and realize that I'm somewhat versed in the in the topic, uh, I've even had some that have followed me out of the plane and, <laughs> and tried to walk with me as I'm going to get my bag, continuing to bombard me with question after question after question. Sometimes I'm tempted to say, you know, I've written quite a number of books and written a lot of articles. <laughs> you might want to consider looking at that. But anyway, so so back to on the repair topic, uh, I spoke at a conference uh, that it, it, it consisted of uh, those in the repair and maintenance side of the automobile industry, and I got a, a resounding round of applause from them. And part of the reason for that is, whereas many other pundits in this space have been saying, oh, somehow, magically, these self-driving cars, are never going to break down. They're going to be maintenance-free. It's just unbelievable that they spout this kind of stuff. And as a result, they've been suggesting if you're in the repair or maintenance side of the automobile industry, get out. Get out now before doomsday arrives. I'm on the complete other side of that. And that's why I got the applause I did, which I contend, to your point, that repair and maintenance is going to increase in importance and to your point, too, kind of another small point in there that I just want to highlight. So right now, if your conventional car has a, a breakdown or a fault or a failure of some kind, you probably begrudgingly take it in, right? Because you know it's money out of your pocket and it's a, a bear to have to deal with. In the future with self-driving cars, as part of this ROI, return on investment equation that I've kind of described before, one of the things you'll have to obviously include in that is the cost for repair and maintenance. So part of the income that you're deriving related to the car, you also have to be willing to set aside some amount of that towards the repair and maintenance. So whereas before it was coming kind of just directly out of your pocket, now it comes out of the income and therefore affects the profit that you make off the car. Another factor to this is the fact that the car can drive itself. So part of what I have portrayed as a future is that in theory, most of the time, the AI self-driving car will be able to go to the repair or maintenance shop on its own. You know, nowadays it's a pain, right? You have to take time out from work or take time out from taking your kids to the park in order to take your car over to that repair place. And that's quite an annoyance. In the future, by and large, and I say by and large because obviously there are some circumstances where an AI self-driving car might just break down in the middle of the road and therefore you can't just have it driven over to someplace and have to be towed there. But let's assume that that's a smaller percentage of the time, but most of the time that you can anticipate the potential for something going awry in the car or just having regular maintenance on the car. So the self-driving car will be able to route itself to a repair or maintenance shop where they will then do that maintenance on it. And so in that sense, I believe that it will actually be good times to repair and maintenance because you've now got an increasingly large base of cars, all of which are making money, and to try to assure that you continue to make money, you're going to be motivated to make sure that that car, that self-driving car, continues to be available viably 
as a ride-sharing vehicle. We're speaking with Dr. Lance Elliott. He's an artificial intelligence, uh, autonomous driving expert, author, contributor to Forbes about autonomous technology. So I imagine all of these cars are going to be equipped with an audio assistant like an Alexa or a Siri that will probably get smarter and smarter, hopefully like Kit from Knight Rider and not like Hal from 2001 Space Odyssey. But will it also have to make decisions on who to save, like in the movie iRobot? So I'm driving in my self-driving car, and I'm in, let's say, in uh, the Midwest where it can be icy, and I'm coming up over this hill, and here comes a school bus full of kids. Well, the school bus, no fault of its own or the AI technology, it hits a patch of ice, so it starts skidding, and the two computers know that, Somebody's going to die in this crash. Is it going to? Is my car going to save me and the bus going to save the kids? And how is all that going to play out? Who's it going to save if we're in that no-win situation? So there's a lot there to unpack. So let's take a few of the uh, aspects of what you just described. So one is in terms of the natural language processing, abbreviated as NLP, uh, just as we're familiar today with Alexa or Siri, uh, the notion is that self-driving cars will have that kind of interactive ability to interact with the passengers in the car. Now, believe it or not, you instantly and, and realized and suggested there that the interaction is going to be one of a fairly sophisticated nature. Believe it or not, so this part may even cause you to fall off your chair, there are some AI developers and tech developers in the self-driving car space that have been saying, oh, the only interaction that's necessary with a passenger in a self-driving car is to ask them, the destination of where they want to go. And I just, it floors me, and I don't know if that floors you, but it floors me when I hear them say things like that because I say, well, that's just crazy on on the face of it. When I get into my car and I start to drive my car, yes, I may know, oh, I'm headed to downtown LA because I'm working in downtown LA. But perhaps part of the way in that transit or journey, I get hungry and I see a sign that says, oh, fast food restaurant. So I decide, you know what, I'm still headed to downtown, but by gosh, I got to get some food. So I want to get off the freeway, get some food and get back onto the freeway. That is therefore in a self-driving car for which you have no ability to drive the car. You have to have some means to interact with the car to say, I'm hungry. Can you find the closest fast food place? And yet, as I say, there are some AI developers and tech firms that are setting that to the side and saying, ah, that's not really a necessity for self-driving cars. They even call it something that, 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 that's kind of a phrase known within the industry. They call it an edge problem. An edge problem is something that when you're developing a system of some kind, you have the core part of it, and then you put other things aside for the moment and say, they're at the edge of what I consider the core problem that I'm trying to solve. So many of the tech firms and automakers, what they have considered as the core right now is just being able to get a self-driving car that can drive and safely do so, let alone having to interact with the passengers. They have positioned the interaction with the passengers as what's called an edge problem, which I kind of suggest, well, I understand that there's only so much you can chew at one time. But on the other hand, I don't really see how valuable or useful a self-driving car is going to be if it can't interact with the passengers in the car. So that's the first part. Second part, to, and there's other parts too, but the second part I think that you were alluding to or that you brought up was the ethics question, which is a really big question that, again, is right now shoved aside as an edge case or corner case kind of problem. And that is, to your point about how will the AI system 
make the kinds of life or death decisions that you and I as human drivers have to make all the time. Not rarely make, but we tend to make them all the time. That is called in the industry the trolley problem. The trolley problem refers back to the 1920s or so when a philosopher came up with this idea. He said, supposing that you have a trolley going down a track and you're there to switch and you can pull the switch to have it go to the left on one track or go to the right on a separate track. On one of the tracks, let's say there's five people tied to the railroad tracks. On the other one, there's one person tied to the railroad tracks. Which way would you guide the trolley to go? Towards the five or towards the one person? Now, this is just a thought experiment, but it's a valuable one because it makes you begin to think about how do you decide very tough ethical questions one one obvious answer to that is well obviously i would save the five rather than the one because five people is somehow more valuable than one person but that's not necessarily the case supposing i tell you something about those five people they're all convicted murderers and the one person is einstein now does that change the way in which you would direct the trolley to go so the trolley problem is an open issue in the self-driving car industry and one that very few are actually confronting as yet. So we may end up with technology that can technically drive a car, but what will it do in those tough ethical situations is still as yet to be determined. I think in that situation, I would try to make the switch go halfway and then derail the car and (laughs) that would take out the most people exactly take out the most amount of people i could uh i I was also reading a fascinating uh article that you wrote that you say railroad crossings speaking of of trains and trolleys that railroad crossings will wreak havoc with these self-driving cars why well first thanks for bringing that up because this is National Railway Safety Week, and I and I thank you for bringing up the topic. Uh, yeah, I wrote that piece last week, and I hope that it would this week spark people to be thinking carefully about railroad crossings. Uh, a few things about railroad crossings before we get into the self-driving car part of it. Uh, so there are in the United States about 130,000 railroad crossings. That's a lot of railroad crossings. Uh, my bet is that the average driver who drives to any degree, you know, an hour, two hours a day on the average likely comes across a railroad crossing in their driving journey. Uh, You might at first assume, well, look, humans do stupid things. They drive around gates where a gate has come down and a train is approaching. And so they get killed by that. In fact, there's an average of about 500 deaths per year from trains colliding with cars. And it's estimated by the federal government statistics that every 90 minutes, Every 90 minutes, a train collides with a car. So it's not something that happens so rarely that you can just kind of say, ah, let's not worry about that. On top of that, this idea of driving around a gate that humans do, you would say, well, certainly no self-driving car, no self-respecting self-driving car is going to try to ride around the gate. So that stops this all this, this unfortunate incidents from happening. But you have to keep in mind only one third of the railroad crossings in the U.S. actually have a gate arm. Two-thirds do not. And in theory, as a driver, you're supposed to remember the old three words, stop, look, and listen whenever you come upon a railroad crossing. Regrettably, most humans don't. So you would say, well, then self-driving cars should be able to solve that. 
But the problem for the self-driving car is it's a lot harder than you think for the sensors of the self-driving car to detect a railroad crossing than in a sense as it is for humans to detect that. On top of that, it could be that the AI system can do things wrong in the act of trying to do right things. And I'll give you an example of that. You may know that Nissan has the Rogue, and that car, right now, there's numerous reports that have been filed with the federal government about concerns of it suddenly breaking for no apparent reason. It has a very kind of low-end kind of technology, AEB, Automatic Emergency Braking System. That AEB, for some reason, is suddenly deciding to brake the car when, according to the dr human driver in the car, they say, look, there was no rhyme or reason for it to suddenly hit the brakes. Some believe, though not yet proven, but some believe that, for example, the AEB, this low-end tech system, gets confused when it comes to a railroad crossing and thinks, uh-oh, railroad crossing, come to a stop. And it just suddenly halts the car, even though no train may be coming along at all. So I use that to illustrate that even once we have AI self-driving cars, the special case of railroad crossings in of itself has quite a number of difficulties and is not just something so easy that we solve by simply having an AI self-driving car how to deal with railroad crossings. So I wanted to actually come back to the AI development side of things because one of the themes throughout this has been that these guys might not be totally in touch with what the average driver wants. I mean, when we talked about them viewing the interface as an edge problem, what I envision is this incredibly sophisticated AI that drives the car by itself and me using this really basic program trying to tell it that I want to get off the highway and the program keeps crashing and we miss three exits because that piece of software is so bad. I mean, is that what we're looking at? Are these guys having regular conversations with drivers to find out what the layperson wants? So there are uh, efforts, R&D, research and development efforts taking place in the NLP, natural language processing aspects for self-driving cars. But as I say, in terms of priority, uh, it's considered a much lesser priority than it is to get the self-driving car itself to simply drive and drive in a safe manner. And so to your point, and what I had tried to suggest earlier, is yes, we may end up sooner with self-driving cars that can drive, but have no ability to be able to interact with the passengers as part of the driving activity. Now, we could try to take a cheaper route, a more quicker route in a sense. One way is to use some automation that you have to communicate with the car. So for example, it could be that you get into the car and it has a screen and on the screen, it allows you to pick different things like maybe it shows a map and you and you pick well here's my destination but i also want to stop along here or maybe you say here's my final destination but while the car is traveling you pick an uh, interim destination and it goes to that but that even that's not going to be fluent at all like how a human driver would be if you had a chauffeur or a driver that's an uber or a taxi driver that was in the car that you could presumably interact with Finally, uh, I know we could talk to you for another hour, and, and so thank you much for uh, graciously spending all this time with us, way longer than we had planned, but the conversation has been so fantastic. Will these self-driving cars uh, of the future still look like a car? It almost seems like it would be pointless to have a self-driving Lamborghini. Uh, there are numerous designs of what these future cars might look like. Let's talk about both the 
external look and the internal or interior part of the car. So for the interior part of the car, most are anticipating that because you no longer need to have a driver's seat. And when you think about it from a think about a conventional car, the driver's seat has to be where it is, right? There's really no question about that. There's a steering wheel there. There's the pedals there. You have to be at the front of the car to be able to visibly see ahead and so on. So imagine a self-driving car where you don't need that driver's seat. And that driver's seat, which is in a fixed position, disappears. Okay, now you've opened up the space when inside the car. And you can do with what you want with that open space. What most are envisioning is that we will have seats in the car that would be of a swivel nature. So that that way you could swivel them to look forward, to look back, to swivel, to face each other. And that idea of facing each other might be a way that if you're going to be working inside your self-driving car while it's underway, that you could face each other, maybe even have like a little table there, and you'd be working uh, jointly with others as, as you do so. Some also believe that we'll be sleeping in our self-driving cars. You know, it might be that today uh, you live 30 minutes away from where you work, but you'd much prefer to live two hours away where you could buy a much more spacious home or live out in the country. But today the commute is just too much of a bear for you. So in the future with a self-driving car, it's going to do the driving for you. You might want to sleep over that two hours that you're headed into work and not even realize that it took two hours to get into work. So another layout of the interior of the car would be that it would have beds in it or something that folds in, into beds. So that's the interior of the car. Now, the exterior of the car and the overall shape of the car, I some believe that we're going to end up with bubbles and that all self-driving cars are going to look the same. It's just this bubble, and inside of it is this space, this kind of design space to allow you to sleep or, or to interact. Personally, I'm not so convinced of that. Yes, that might happen like eons from now that we'll get there. But I believe that in the interim period where gradually self-driving cars are becoming prevalent and so on, I think that people are still going to want a certain look and feel that will be attractive to them for the self-driving car that they have. And even on a ride-sharing basis, Today, certainly, you don't really care what car you're getting into, but that isn't completely true because, obviously, if you know you have multiple people and you got bags and so on, you want a larger size car versus a smaller size car. Then the other aspect that I've written about that I posted this week and a couple of weeks ago as well is the whole question about sports cars. Will we still have sports cars in an era of true self-driving cars? Does it make sense to sit in a sports car where you aren't driving the car? Because most people that have sports cars, what they tend to suggest that they really enjoy about the sports car is their ability to drive it in a sporty fashion. Even though the reality is, of course, most days uh, when you're on the freeway, you, know, you can't go 120, 150 miles an hour. So you really can't truly you leverage what the sports car can do. So will we have AI self-driving cars that are sports cars? Kind of an open question. Uh, and this also takes us back to kind of the original part of this discussion, too, about will we ultimately eliminate all human driving or will we accept that there will be human driving along with true self-driving cars? And that's a big question for society that's not yet been answered. And this brings us back to the original point of your article, Will Self-Driving Vehicles Erode America's Love Affair with Cars? You can read about that article on Forbes right now. There are a bunch of other articles covering many of the subjects that we talked about today. Uh, Dr. Elliot, how else can people get a hold of you if they want to get some more information? 
Yeah, definitely. I uh, welcome them to take a look at my Forbes pieces. Uh, I also have, I'm on Twitter, and so it's at Lance Elliott, L-A-N-C-E-E-L-I-O-T. It's kind of an unusual spelling for Elliott. Uh, They're welcome to follow me on Twitter, and on Twitter I also post generally about what's taking place in the self-driving car space, and then I write not only for Forbes, but for AI Trends, for Medium, and a variety of other uh, outlets as well. Uh, and try to cover a wide range of topics in an interesting way about self-driving cars today and the future. Well, you most certainly did. We were very interested, in, and the conversation was, I know, a lengthy one, but it didn't feel that long for us. So, again, thank you for your time, Dr. Lance Elliott, the autonomous driving expert, author, contributor to Forbes, all-around intelligent guy, a lot smarter than the two of us, Joseph Put and together. myself. Yes, exactly right. Thanks for having me on the show. Remember, if you have a question or comment about the show, you can always call or email us. 303-832-0217 is the number. You can reach out to us via email at drivingyoucrazypodcast at gmail.com. We, of course, have uh, love to have all the messages and comments uh, come into the show. I appreciate all of you checking out the podcast every week. And we will be back, hopefully, next week with a uh, new episode. We'll see how everything goes. Everything's changing minute by minute. Uh, with this uh, changing world. So stay safe out there, keep your distance, and uh, I hope to see you again next time. Until then, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.